0: But first, it is, as we mentioned, Federal Budget Day, and of course that means many people will be taking a look at what the federal government can do in terms of this crisis with affordable housing. In fact, should anybody in Vancouver be paying like $2,300 a month for rent for a 600-square-foot apartment? That is a reality and there are so many other realities like that when it comes to a lack of affordability and it hits at every level of government, not just local, not just provincial, it's also federal. So with everything else we're taking a look at in the budget, we're going to be taking a look at that one too and to talk a little bit about what we can be doing in terms of planning, and also what the federal government can be doing to help us out with affordable housing here in Vancouver and B.C. We bring in Dr. Penny Gerstein, a professor emeritus at UBC UBC School of Community and Regional Planning. Good morning, Professor. Good morning. Great to have you in here. You know, this is still a problem. We continue to talk about it month after month, year after year, and yet I'm not seeing any solutions where does the problem fall is it on the politicians or is it on the uh the planners? Uh
1: well okay so i what i want to actually talk about is is a recent report that came out in January of uh 2023 from Scotiabank um and that's you know uh, that that called for a doubling of social housing stock uh that that is really needed urgently across Canada uh we have right now uh the lowest percentage of one of the lowest percentage of social housing uh anywhere in the um, in, um, in in Europe, compared to Europe Australia other places um uh, and what and what that means is that there is uh, a to, you know been a bit almost a total reliance on uh, the private sector to address housing and it hasn't worked. And so the you know what their the, what this report is saying and quite frankly, housing researchers have said this for a long time. But when a bank a you know one of the big banks say this, I think hopefully the federal government will start listening to this. Is that um, uh, you know that the stock of social housing represents only. 3.5 uh, percent of the total housing stock. Um, that's 655,000 units, um, and that we're we're really dropping behind others. I mean, to, you know, in comparison, in the Netherlands, uh, close to 35 percent of the housing is, is social housing, and so what we need is a, is affordable. Uh, uh, housing that meets people's needs uh, in terms of their incomes, but it also in terms of their of their household needs, and we're not building that kind of housing stock. We're building the housing stock that that is catering to a market, uh, you know, that is investor and, and speculator driven, and it, and it's to our our economic develop uh, detriment because we're. We're forcing uh, sort of the workforce to be moving further and further away from from large population centers to to find housing, uh, which makes you know their lives more and more difficult, and it makes it more and more unaffordable because they have to use they have to use uh, transportation you know uh, cars and everything to get to work. Uh, you know, I don't I don't know if you, where you live, but there are practically uh, when you ask people in Vancouver uh the service workers where they're working where they're living, they're all living in Surrey. You know it takes a now over an hour for them to get into work
0: well Dr. Penny Gerstein, it's a good point, and I live in Surrey. In fact, I live in the furthest stretch of Surrey almost on the Langley boundary. Uh, and I'm certainly not uh at the at the pay level of someone that is working in the uh, service industry, but I still can't afford to live in Vancouver and uh, work in Vancouver. Now, I take a look at those people that uh, served me a Starbucks in the morning or my Tim Hortons in Vancouver, and I wonder, you know, early in the morning, where are they coming from? Where are they living? Because they certainly can't afford to, and we're not even talking about townhouses, we're talking about uh, even basement suites or apartments in Vancouver. They can't afford to live here.
1: No, they can't. They can't, and so I mean, this is this is really a shocking. You know, when we're 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 uh, we're relying so much on service workers. You know, for example, uh, you know, this is you know to use an example is that there is a huge concentration of police living in Langley in in one area. Um, uh, there's practically no. I don't. Well, I don't think there is still any police uh, living in West Vancouver. So what happens if there is some kind of emergency, you know, and they need, you know, so they're going to have to travel all the way from Langley to, to West Vancouver. Yeah, so and the
0: earthquake getting across the river, um, oh, which, yes. which has yes. been one of those big conversations for a few years now. Uh, but it is a reality. What do you do in situations like that? Myself, uh, working in the news business, uh, I've had to come in you know, an hour away in a news emergency to uh, come into Vancouver. And, um, you know, it's it's a bit of a trek. Uh, I, and yet, at the same time, I can look out the window from the TD Tower here and see a whole bunch of housing units and uh, apartments uh, behind me and houses up on the hill in the background. Who's living in there?
1: Well, I mean... You know, we' we don't totally know who's living there, but I mean, uh, we 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 do know that there's. It's very difficult for young families to be living there. You know, so so I mean, it's people who are singles, people that are that are empty nesters, people that you know, which is why Vancouver is becoming an aging uh, 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 city. Uh, you know, all we see, you know, all you see around you are, 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 you know, people that that look like they're really enjoying themselves because they're they're retired. But where where are those people? Where are the service workers? Where are? And you know, worse than that, I mean, you know, we're we're now having this homeless population, not not just in the downtown east side, but everywhere. So anywhere you walk, you see homeless people. Um, there's a huge population that are not even being housed here. I mean, it's it's just a, a very very difficult situation, and, um, uh, and and as I said before, the private sector cannot be expected or cannot uh, do uh, you know provide the housing that is really needed. There, we need to have government intervention in some way, and we need to be building more social housing.
0: Why can't the private sector be involved is there any money to be made fairly in uh, in building social housing for the private sector?
1: Well, the social well, the private sector does get involved when when there's a downturn in the economy because then they recognize well, you know, uh you know that they are uh they need to be building housing and also uh you know any large any, any development requires a percentage of 20% of of social housing or um you know giving money in lieu for another kind of project, so there are so developers are working with the, with the non profit sector to to be building housing, but it's still it's still not enough to be um, you know to to address the gap that has been building for decades
0: no, it isn't. Bruce it in for Mike Smith. We've been talking about affordable housing, social housing, need for more of that in Vancouver. Our guest is Dr. Penny Gerstein, Professor Emeritus, UBC School of Community and Regional Planning. Doctor, when I take a look at, um, you know, the the idea of uh, social housing in Vancouver just not being there, what is the ask that we could have a precise ask from government. What is required to turn this around?
1: Well, okay. So uh, the the federal government has started. So with they, you know, as soon as the the uh, uh, as soon as the liberals came into power, they they. They developed a national housing strategy and they put some money towards that eight eight billion dollars, or sorry six billion dollars over ten years, and they uh, uh, which you know when you're spread across Canada is not is not that much, uh, but they uh, but. Uh, the, they are you know so they are starting to address this, uh, but what you know some things are uh in the, they've and so they 've developed a series of programs um to support that some of them are not really being uptaked uh as much as they should be there was a recent audit around that uh, and one of them is. Um, you know what we need is more uh, is more rental housing, but that's not becoming for- forthcoming because they're um, they're re- again relying on you know totally on the private sector. What we really need is much more partnerships between the. Um, the private sector and the nonprofit sector and I, I know, and I think that's that is possible, but it isn 't just that the private sector would be leading it would have to be real partnerships because the nonprofit sector has been really good at delivering housing as much as they can i mean they've you know they 've had to they need you know probably more capacity building around this but they but you know predominantly they, they've they 've been trying as much as they can do, but it has to be a partnership, not you know not one sort of dominant the other, and so um, uh, and what's happened is that the the programs where they're uh, uh, intending for rental housing has not been uh, been used that much, and so you know you're sort of wondering, well, what's going on here? And I I, I do think that there is a real uh, you know problem in trying to understand how to address this, how to address housing uh, because it has been left so much to just the private sector for for decades. And so it's it's you know how do you how do you think this how do you rethink it? One of the ways that I I think is really important is you have to start thinking about housing as infrastructure and 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 you know there usually is money in the federal government for infrastructure like roads and, and um, internet access and all, all those other things. But you know housing is also infrastructure. It's critical if you if you don't have uh, a proper housing for people the economy is going to be uh, impacted. And right now, in in certain areas like Vancouver, Toronto, what we have is a real estate market. We don't have a housing system. We don't have an effective housing system that that is addressing people's needs.
0: We don't have an effective housing system, but we also don't have a city that I would argue works in a way that is really healthy, and that is a diverse city, economically diverse city. It's not the model that uh, Jane Jacobs would have thought, is it?
1: No, no. I mean, we we and that's and that is very much uh, why you know a, a whole range of different kind of housing is needed, uh, and and we're not we're not building that. I mean. Uh, you know, in the 70s, you know, there was that uh, there was that sort of flowering, and we were, we, you know, we were moving out of the kind of sleepy place that Vancouver was into a, into you know, more of a city. I mean, and then it was escalated, and now you know, we're 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 losing the essence of what of what a city could be, and you're totally right about that.
0: So what? And I come back to this question: What do we do in order to bring in a model? that actually encourages partnerships that are not for-profit.
1: Yes. Okay. So it, it, it won't just be, I mean, you have to have a combination of, of pro- for-profit and profit uh, and, and non-profit. But at, right now, in order to uh, uh, look at, you know, to be looking at an effective housing system that would support an effective economy, you need to be, increasing social housing at a really much more significant rate than it is and right now cities cannot be built you know they don't build social housing they don't have the funding what happens is that the you know, federal government gives money to the provinces, and, the pro- and B.C. is recognizing that, and they're trying the best they can to do that. But it, again, it has to be a whole countrywide system. And, um, and uh, you know, like the healthcare system, like other things. I mean, you know, and I recognize Canada has a, ver- a variety of crises right now. So I'm not sure if that's a good response to this, but it, but it is a much more complex than just saying, well, fix one city. You can't just fix one city. You have to really fix the whole system.
0: I don't know if it's a good response either, but it is the conversation that we continue to need, and I think that's very important.
1: Yes. Okay. Thank you.
0: Here's Bruce Plaggett in for Mike Smith. Great to have you with us on a Tuesday morning. Any of us who have lost a phone know that there is a tool that can be used to easily locate it um, because you have a digital footprint, right? You can uh, use that uh, on the iPhone, Uh, the iPhone track it and uh, find out where your phone is uh, or your iPad or maybe your Apple Watch and similar things for other devices and other platforms. Well, that technology does exist, but you extend that technology to our own privacy and our rights. And there's the case of the RCMP around the lower mainland continuing to use a tool that allows investigators to track suspects based on the location of their cell phones and other mobile devices. And this despite the failing to finalize a policy on how to address those significant privacy issues that are raised by this new technology the type of technology that has been talked about for the rcmp is kind of a stingray type technology dustin godfrey in the globe and mail writes uh based on a freedom of information request that this technology has been used 112 times with 57 percent of those deployments being for drug investigations that's great that's uh a great tool for the RCMP, but what about you and me and those who are caught up with their own privacy and may not be, you know, having anything to hide? Is it going too far? Do we need more guidelines or a firm policy about this? Well, let's bring in Brian short. He's a digital rights campaigner at open media and Brian, thanks so much for joining us this morning. I find this fascinating uh, in many ways, and kind of scary in some others. What's your take with open media on what the RCMP are able to do? Hey,
2: Bruce. Thanks for having me on the show. Pleasure to be here. Um, so I guess there's two different kinds of technologies you've been describing there. There's the, the GPS tracking technology that's equipped on cell phones, sort of the find my phone thing. And then there's what the stingrays or cell site simulators of the RCMP Uh, and other police forces in Canada are using. And they're a little bit different uh, because the cell site simulators don't use GPS. They're impersonating a a piece of telecommunications infrastructure, uh, a cell phone tower, and they're tricking our phones into connecting to that. And then they're collecting information, uh, metadata, about where we are and who we are uh, uh, through that. Um, So a bit of a difference there. And, And our major concern with it is just that this technology has been operating in Canada for more than or nearly 20 years now and we don't have an official policy in place that regulates the use of this technology and i think that's that's a huge concern
0: there has been a push for the regulation of this and we'll get to that in a second but uh just talking about the technology there is there a way if you have cell towers being uh simulated that somebody might suspect that their phone is falling victim to uh, being tracked
2: Sure. Yeah. So, like, what an average person might um, might notice interference with their phone. They might be trying to make a call and it's not working. Um, and the you know it's not going to happen very often. As you you notice some uh, statistics there, the regularity of its use. It's it's not something that's used necessarily every day by the police, um, but it affects a huge swath of, of people in the area. It's it's called dragnet surveillance, sort of mass indiscriminate surveillance. When one of these devices is operating and they're as small as something that you could fit into a briefcase or you could drive around within a car, all the phones within two kilometers of this cell site simulator are being tricked into connecting to this device. Um, So at that moment, you might lose your connection. Your connection will switch over to a a different tower. Um, And, yeah, it could interfere with the operations of, of, you know, the normal workings of a phone.
0: From our understanding right now, what does the RCMP require in order to do this sort of tracking? Any sort of warrants or anything like that?
2: Yeah, so for most uses, a warrant is required, uh, except for in what they refer to as exigent circumstances. And these are circumstances in which, um, you know, severe bodily harm or death could occur. Um, and certainly uh, the RCMP and other police forces are using self um, site simulators under those circumstances, uh, but, but it's a little bit more limited. And we only really have an idea of how it's been used since about 2017. Um, that's the first time a policy was, was issued, this interim policy. We now have a draft policy, still waiting for some kind of final policy. And we only got that because uh, of the good work of, of folks at the B.C. Civil Liberties Association here in B.C., pressing the Vancouver Police Department about whether or not they were using uh, one of these devices. And, and they were initially somewhat deceived as to whether or not they were using one. Uh, it turns out that they were using one. The one that they were using was the property of the RCMP. And through that, uh, the executive director currently here at Open Media, Laura Tribe, uh, submitted a complaint to the Office of the Privacy Co- Commissioner of Canada, who then conducted an, an investigation and found that the RCMP had been using these devices since 2005.
0: Well, wasn't, uh, let's, you're using some very nice words there, somewhat <laughs> deceived. Uh, it was a lie.
2: Sure. Well, I mean, the RCMP is an enormous organization, and, you know, in good faith, perhaps we could, we could believe that there, you know, something that might be happening in one place somebody else might not know about. But, yeah, I mean, the, uh, the pessimistic view would be that, yeah, they, that there was no, no lie or a very creative and constructive use of language.
0: Okay, so the policy and use of the technology um, being around uh, the interim policy since 2017, I understand a draft policy came along three years later. What is in the draft policy? What are the, now this is not approved, but what are the suggestions and guidelines for that?
2: Yeah, So they, they paint a picture of, of sort of broadly how these uh, devices can be used, what kind of investigations they can be used in and what kind of information they can collect. Uh, from my reading of that policy, they're still limited to just collecting what is referred to as metadata. So that would be the device ID for a phone, which could the police could then go to a telecommunications provider like TELUS, Rogers, Bell, and say, we need to know who exactly this person is or who this phone is registered to. Uh, the other thing, which is quite alarming that it can connect, collect about everybody along with these device IDs is location. So where you are at that time or where this device happens to be at that time. And, you know, if if they're operating this device multiple times a day in different areas, it would track these devices all throughout, you know, this two kilometer geographic area. Um, so those are the capabilities that the, that the the policy describes that these devices can do. Uh, but these devices can do more, uh, certainly Stingrays, this is a brand name, sort of like a Kleenex or a Frisbee. Um, But cell site simulators can collect more than just metadata. They can collect, you know, communications data, messages being sent, voice calls, images. The RCMP says that uh, they don't collect that information. Uh, And in 2017, the Privacy Commissioner's investigation determined that they didn't at that point in time. But that was six years ago. So things may have changed since then.
0: Do you trust that they're telling the truth, the full truth, and nothing but the truth? Um, do I trust them? Yeah. Um, I think that there's reason to be suspicious here.
2: Uh, one of the statements recently made, um, as the Global Mail article uh, reported, is that the RCMP said that one of the reasons they haven't put in place an official policy is because of technological changes with, this, with these devices. Um, so perhaps that means that, you know, the new policy or the final policy might say that they can actually collect more. And there's, there certainly is a ton of secrecy around the use of these devices. The RCMP historically, um, you know, when they were first using these without any kind of policy in place, without any kind of real public knowledge, uh, would forego, uh, prosecutions to, to conceal exactly what these devices were capable of doing and how that they were using them. There was a, a huge investigation into, uh, I think it was sort of organized crime in Quebec. And they ended up dropping the charges uh, because they didn't want to reveal how these devices were being used.
0: And it is Bruce Claggett in for Mike Smith. The topic we are exploring is whether the RCMP should be allowed or able to track your location based on your cell phone or other mobile device. Simple question, yes or no. Should they be allowed to? Deeper question might be, under what circumstances would love to hear from you, you can give us a phone call at 604-280-9898. We do know the RCMP in the Lower Mainland have been able to track people, suspects in various cases, based on their cell phones, find out their location. We do know that this... Stingray-type technology has been used 112 times, with 57% of those deployments being for drug investigations. Love to hear your views. 604-280-9898. Is it overreach, or is this you got nothing to hide, nothing to worry about? Give us a call. Let us know. Our guest has been... Brian Short, he's a digital rights campaigner at Open Media. We'll go to the calls. Marty in the Caribou. Marty, what do you think of this?
2: Yeah, well, I definitely think there should be some oversight. Civilian, civilian, and I want to emphasize that oversight. I don't trust the police. I don't think most Canadians do. If they're not corrupt, partially, they certainly have shown that they could be incompetent. Nova, You know, the Nova Scotia shooting, the, you know, the... Victoria Parliament bombing fiasco, millions of dollars spent on entrapping two people, and all that money pissed away for, for no reason. So, um, and, and, and no accountability. It no, I appreciate the call and I agree with the
0: accountability. That's a good question uh, for Brian Short. Marty, thanks for the call, Marty and the Caribou. Uh, Brian Short, what about uh, accountability and oversight? Is this something that uh, can square the problem? Maybe be a solution?
2: I, I think so. Yeah, I think, I think Marty's right there. Civilian oversight is, is really important. And I, I look to a model that's been a, adapted in many cities in the United States around the oversight of police technologies. It's called CCOPs, or Community Control of Police um, Surveillance. And what this does is it empowers elected officials um, and uh, an advisory board of experts that could provide um, s- s- some advice on, on the technologies that are being studied or being used uh, but it would, you know, at the municipal level, you know, city councillors would be able to vote, discuss, elect what technologies the local police force is using. And every year they would have another discussion. Should we be using this? Um, right now, that just, that just doesn't exist in Canada. There, there's, there's a problem with police governance. And I think civilian oversight would go a long way to help um, build trust with these important institutions like the police, um, because we're in a moment right now where trust is
0: pretty fraught. Interesting, Nathan, in Kelowna, what do you think?
2: Well, there's that old expression. I think it was, I know it's not Abe Lincoln, but it was one of those, when you sacrifice freedom for security, you will soon have neither. And now that should be revisited and, and read, uh, when you sacrifice information for security, you will soon have neither. Um Privacy of the individual Canadian citizen, for whatever reason, seeing, Canadians by and large, we seem to have this great big apathy, is where where when it comes to oh well I have nothing to hide, well that's not the point. the The point is is that the RCMP likes to do things that other law enforcement agencies in Western civilization don't want to do like Mr. Big, like all those Mr. Big investigations. I think we're the only Western law enforcement agency left that does that because it's such a a grotesque overreach. Really interesting point.
0: I agree with you, Nathan. Uh, It's also interesting when you compare the powers of police for searching a vehicle in Canada, completely different than in the States, where a vehicle is almost an extension of your home and the requirements of suspicion of uh, something are much stricter when it comes to the states, uh, for my understanding. But it goes to show, appreciate the phone call, Nathan, in Kelowna. Let's go to Doug in Surrey. Doug, uh, what do you think about this?
3: Well,
2: it's like everything else. If they can do it now to uh, track criminals and what they suspect uh, maybe uh, could possibly take shape, uh, how long is it before they can uh, use their interpretation of what they suspect in the private life of private citizens who are up to nothing criminal, and uh, they could justify it with any way they want, by whatever
1: reason they want.
0: Well, I like this, Doug, and uh, thanks for the call. Brian, you mentioned something earlier, and it uh, was a bit of a sticking point for me, and that is if they suspect that there may be life in jeopardy Uh, which is an interpretation, I guess. Uh, And that interpretation could go to any drug case, couldn't it, Brian?
2: Well, yeah, I suppose it could. Um, But I think that, you know, an official policy, should one ever actually come out, would hold them to that, right? Because then in retrospect, we could look at it and say, well, what were the circumstances in which you felt that these were exigent and you didn't go to a judge to get a warrant for this? I think that the police prefer to work in this sort of lurky ground where the public is not aware of of what they're doing, what their sort of procedurals, the technologies they have are. And then when we find out about it, I think we've, what we've seen is a period of six years now where they've kind of been in this period of time where they haven't developed an official policy. Oh, we've got a draft policy. Oh, we have an interim policy. And it allows them that wiggle room to still kind of slip and slide and, and get creative in the use of these technologies. And, And in that space, I think there's a ton of room for errors to occur.
0: Absolutely. Time uh, for policy indeed and something uh, in writing that can be held. Brian, thanks for your time this morning. Thanks so much for having me. And thanks for being with us. Bruce Claggett in for Mike Smith. You know, if you've gone out to a bar, restaurant recently and ordered a drink, you may have noticed another section on the bar list, the drink list, that is starting to grow. What I'm talking about are the mocktails. Uh, The drinks that contain no booze, no alcohol, none of the fun, or perhaps they do have fun, they're being elevated to a different level. And the Demand for these drinks is growing, whether we're talking about wine, whether we're talking about beer or some of the even mixology drinks, some of the real fancy ones that you can even demand a little bit more money for the mocktails, the wine that's alcohol free, the beer. It's a whole segment that continues to grow and there will be more opportunities to buy some of these drinks here in B.C., well, I caught up with Mark Cospera. He's the founder and proprietor of Soft, Soft Crush to talk about this growing segment of the market.
4: I think it's coming from many places. I think post-pandemic, uh, people are looking to moderate everything in their life, including including their drinking. And uh, the demands for adult beverages that aren't soda and pop and juices and coffee and tea when you're dining, um, people are demanding better quality and want a full dining experience.
0: The options for alcohol-free traditionally have been things like getting a ginger ale, mocktail that was something like a Shirley Temple you had as a kid. That's no longer the case, is it?
4: No, no. Bartenders, mixologists are really taking this category quite seriously and you know, it's really about inclusive hospitality and making sure that people have options to be around their friends with or without alcohol. But also, you know, <clears throat> most products these days are actually going through full distillation first and then going through another process called um, vacuum distillation or centrifuge. So there is an extra step to get these products dealcoholized. So it is a little bit more costly to do so. And... You know, we have many clients that are, have no problem charging a premium cost for, uh, for you know, spirit-free drinks.
0: What uh, drinks have we done this with?
4: Yeah, well, I mean, our core focus is wine for sure. And most of our products go through a process called vacuum distillation. So um, everything is actually full alcohol first. And then it goes through this process where the wine is heated up to about 27 degrees for one minute. And then the alcohol is actually removed via vacuum. And then all of the other particles that have been removed are actually added back in. So we've got a real wine product, and we're doing the same with some of our distillates as well. Um, When it comes to beer, um, the great thing about beer, and that's probably the most successful category, is that they use something called a lazy yeast. So those sugars are not fully converting into alcohol. So it's a little bit easier on the beer front um, and that's why they've been so successful in getting to market.
0: But what are you hearing from sommeliers and people that have gone through their WSET course, uh, I did my level one, uh, what are they saying about wine with no alcohol? You know,
4: we, <laughs> sommeliers can be the toughest critics for sure when it comes to non elk for sure. Um, you know, last year we were at the Vancouver International Wine Fest with our non elk wines, and we're again doing that this year in Vancouver. And we had some masters of wine come by and tasted through our whole lineup. And they were really impressed with the quality, with the winemaking style, and they thought that this was an important category to be paying attention to. And, you know, they were actually quite thrilled with with what we had to offer. So we're getting there slowly.
0: So you can still appreciate uh, the terroir in a wine without alcohol.
4: Yes, you can. Yeah, most of our products actually come from proper wine-designated growing regions made with proper vinifera grapes. And, uh, you know, we've got one producer in particular from Germany, Lights, that that has announced that he can probably do Grand Cru-level styled non elk wines in the future. So we are definitely on the right
0: path. Let's move on to beers. It used to only be uh, places like Portland where you would talk about uh, the beer scene now, every major city in the world, it seems to have some sort of craft beer scene. So are you playing into different markets where people go for the craft beer?
4: Yeah, I think the lots of craft brewers in Canada are already uh, doing at least one version of a non-elk. And then there's certain companies that are also just focusing on non-elk beers as well. So the selection uh, keeps growing every day for non-elk beers.
0: Well. Wow and the feedback that you're getting there is? People are excited about it because people,
4: you know, there's lots of different reasons why people aren't drinking, health reasons, faith-based reasons, but people now more than ever seem to just want to moderate and, you know, maybe have one full alcohol drink and then take a break with a a 0 elk. So that's what we're seeing a lot of is this switching in and out, um, which is very interesting.
0: And then you move on to your mixed drinks. Are you also seeing a move toward that uh, that's growing?
4: Yes. Yeah. I mean, in general, the cocktail evolution and revolution that's happened over the last 10 years is, is fantastic. Um, and we are seeing some serious mixologists take this category very seriously. And, uh, yeah, we've done some great things with even like highs in Gotham and Gotham in Vancouver. And uh, we're seeing, yeah, we're seeing that category grow for sure.
0: Give me an example of a mixed drink that doesn't have alcohol that you think is just fantastic.
4: You know what? We can do um, some classic things like a Negroni, which is really interesting, or a Mojito. Yeah. So, I mean, there's all of these real distillates that are just de-alcoholized versions of vermouths, you know, bitter orange, gins, rum, whiskey, all of these things. So we're seeing this really come to the
0: forefront. Mark, where do we go from here?
4: Well, based on statistics that have happened just recently in the last couple of years, we're seeing about 20 to 30% growth in the non-L category uh, year after year. And we've certainly seen that bump this year for dry January, dry February. And um, I think it'll continue to grow. Uh, I think the most exciting category is going to be into grocery stores, Um and see where they uh, play with the non-elk space. Uh, but we're also thrilled that, uh, you know, major looker boards like the BCLDB LDB uh, has done a tender officially for non-elk as well. So uh, they're also looking at the category.
0: So what does that mean in BC? Well, the
4: tender just wrapped up last week. So we are hoping for some positive results uh, in the, by the end of April, hopefully, and then see... See some shelf placements for for non-Elk in the BCLDB division. There's already a few products there for sure. Um, but you know, with the two percent decrease in alcohol consumption nationally in 2022, um, you know it's great that the liquor board's looking at alternatives to maintain their revenue streams.
0: Mike is off today. I'm Bruce Claggett in for Mike Smith. You know, I hear plenty of criticisms about this one thing when it comes to Vancouverites, and that is, as a people, as a group, we tend to be a little standoffish, to the point of even being, dare I say, a little rude. And I wonder if that has more to do with our lack of skill when it comes to socializing. You know, are we, as a people, as a group, in this city... Are we a little more standoffish because we just don't know what to do with eye contact or body language? Are we overly aware? Are we a little bit more introverted than maybe people in the interior or other parts of the country? Well, there is an event coming up on April 1st here in Vancouver to help those who may need it to become more social. Devon Ash is a co-founder of Social Fluency and joins us now, Devin Asha. Thanks for being with us.
3: Hey, thanks for having me, Bruce.
0: Tell me about Social Fluency and what we mean by that term.
3: Yeah, um, I mean it's kind of like a. A lot of people think, "Oh, you must be talking about social media," and no, it's it's really like being a human, being this natural thing that we've been for our whole process of getting to this point. Um, so it's conversation it's assertiveness it's humor body language um you named a few of those things before as well and these are you know these very subtle things that are slipping away as we as we become more enmeshed with technology you know people are using emojis to express themselves more clearly than they can in a conversation so that's essentially what what we're going to be working on at this uh, workshop coming up
0: well, there is a true disorder too. There's social anxiety disorder, and there are people that uh, suffer from various different uh, phobias that may be related to it. Um, but I yeah. guess when it comes down to it, there are still social skills, right?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And just to touch on uh, social anxiety and, and social phobias, I mean, a lot of a lot of that can be, you know, very serious. You know, can kind of derail your life. But if you slowly push against these anxieties and you, you know, you do gradual exposure therapy, coming out to a workshop like this would be an example of that. Just gently pushing yourself a little tiny bit out of your comfort zone every day by doing that over and over and over, you start to recognize that the things that you're afraid of are maybe more in your mind than they are in, in reality. And so, yeah, these skills are absolutely something that you can develop over time. Um, You know, if someone is dealing with a, you know, a full on phobia, that's, that's generally outside of my wheelhouse, but someone who's got a bit of social anxiety, or even, you know, pretty severe social anxiety, they freeze up in conversations, they don't, they want to avoid, you know, going out to a party or or meeting up with an old friend, even um, that that is the area that I, I focus on. And by developing these skills, with little tiny changes, like that's the thing that's important to recognize that it's not about a big sweeping life change that has to happen. It's it's small daily shifts. It's kind of like changing your your body. You know, if you want to do that, you want to take your time and you want to you know want to get results that are going to last. And so that's why you have to develop these skills slowly.
0: Devin, I do want to talk about the event coming up on April first, mm-hmm. which I guess would be Saturday here in Vancouver. But that's before right. we get to that, uh, there must be a story behind you and uh, how you became co-founder of Social Fluency. Is there a bit of a tale? Yeah,
3: there there is a bit of a tale. Um, so I, growing up, I moved around a lot and I had to become, you know, I had to basically reset my social life every year, a new school, a new start. And I became a natural, someone who could just kind of make things happen. Um, in grade 10, uh, one of the schools I went to was Columbine High School. And so I was in university when the shooting happened, but I was quite freaked out by that, that incident because I have younger brothers and I was, I was just, you know, I was 23, 23 at the time when the shooting happened,
0: but it's still your school
3: It's still my school. I knew the teacher. Um, I knew one of the kids who did it. I didn't really know him, but I had a class with him and I knew the bullies who had kind of pushed those kids to their limit. And, um, and so, yeah, I was quite freaked out by that, uh, but I didn't know what to do with it. Fast forward a little bit. I'm finishing university, and the day I graduate, the day I finish, uh, I'm diagnosed with skin cancer on my face. And so I had to have major reconstructive surgery to, to kind of you know, get rid of the cancer, but uh, it left me with a huge scar. And so I became really reclusive, and I became very introverted, and I became depressed and I, I basically had to work my way out of that by redeveloping my confidence. And I did that through reading books and working with friends who were you know, a bit more confident than me and and essentially got myself back to a place where I understood why the certain things that I could do in, in social situations would get the results that I wanted. And uh, and then I yeah, built a company with some friends called Social Fluency. Uh, 15 years ago. So we've been operating in Vancouver for 15 years, but we've also had offices in the States and, um, and, and, you know, expanded that way as well. So um, done a lot of corporate training, worked with Apple and Google and uh, YouTube. And ultimately what I love working with is individuals and helping them develop this type of confidence so that they can have better relationships, romantic, platonic, professional, all of it.
0: Devin, uh, you have an interesting journey, and I imagine people that come to you also have journeys, not similar, but definitely things that have developed in their lives to make social interaction a bit of a challenge. But the one thing that unites everybody that you're dealing with is the value of people-to-people interaction. So
3: Mm -hmm. with
0: that coming up, Tell me about the event that's organized for April 1st here in Vancouver on Saturday.
3: That's right. Saturday, uh, 6 p.m. So it's a little evening thing, kind of get you warmed up. And then afterwards, the idea would be go out and socialize and and meet people taking that kind of new skill that you've developed and go apply it. Uh, We're going to be doing lots of drills and exercises. It's going to be co-hosted by uh, Nina um, Perez, and she will be kind of guiding some body language work, and the two of us, our plan is to really set you guys up with some actionable skills so it's not just a theoretical experience. It'll be a a genuine workshop where you're learning some behavioral patterns that you can try out in the real world.
0: And those who are interested in attending, I guess there still is space, hopefully?
3: Yeah, yeah. Um, We we do have limited space, but there are um, about 15 spots left. Um, so yeah, we'd love to have people come out. The best way for people to find it, um, would be to go to socialfluency.com and on the top right corner of the page, you'll see, um, our next live event. And that'll just take the, whoever wants to join us, uh, take you to the place to buy a ticket.
0: Socialfluency.com. There you go. Upper right-hand corner. Devin Ash, uh, thanks so much and, uh, best of luck coming up this weekend.
3: Thanks so much, Bruce. Appreciate it.